I had no idea anything was wrong until I tried to cut it off. The hair was like any of the others I'd usually shaved from my legs, but this one had emerged from the tip of my index finger. First time I saw it, I stared at it for a good long minute, wondering how the hell a single hair had grown from underneath a nail. It was brown like my hair and slightly stiff enough that it held forward as I moved my hand back and forth to confirm that it was actually part of me. Alright then, no matter how it had happened, it was unsightly and I had to go. But when I held my scissors near my forefinger and prepared to cut, the hair retracted out of sight back under my nail. Somewhat dazed and full of unfocused concern, I ran through a list of possible options. The first one that sprang to mind was always going to the hospital, but I couldn't afford it for something that might be silly or some sort of hallucination. Instead, I called my best friend Matt. He answered the phone and blurted the question I'd been about to ask. Did anything weird just happen to you? While staring down at my normal-seeming hand, I said, I saw a hair growing out from under my fingernail. He said with concern, I was hoping I'd imagined the whole thing. I go, call everyone? Call everyone. The drive over to Matt's house was strangely normal. Sweaty fathers were out with their lawnmowers in the summer heat, fellow college students were running or walking dogs, and other drivers were listening to the radio or smoking in their cars. As Matt would have said, the rest of the world was not in a panic, so whatever problem we had was happening to just us. When I got there, Shannon and Brian were already sitting around the kitchen table talking with a strained expression. Brian looked sickly pale, but Shannon and Matt were fine. Unable to take my worried gaze off the sweat rolling down Brian's forehead, I slowly sat opposite them. Matt leaned forward on his side of the table. Okay, so I was just telling them. The rest of the world seems fine, so this is just us. Something we did or interacted with. I continued to watch Brian as he trembled and held his stomach against some suppressed pain. Narrowing my eyes, I asked, what do you guys think it is? Brian glanced quickly at me, seeing that I was watching him. He looked away just as fast. I wasn't lost on Matt. Brian, do you know something? Our sickly friend shivered as all eyes turned to him. I, I mean, the only thing I can think of would be the eggs. The closest to him, Shannon gripped his forearm. The eggs, Brian? Yeah, the ones I brought last night for our potluck. I had one myself the night before, so I thought they were fine. My stomach churned with a mix of fear and betrayal. What was wrong with them? You guys know I like to go spelunking, right? Well, I found a new cave this weekend, and I found some eggs down there, like, real deep. They looked like chicken eggs, so I thought maybe somebody just hit a stash down there. Matt's glare could have cut someone in half. You fed us cave eggs? I ate one, 
Brian responded weakly. I, I thought it was fine. I didn't want to spend money at the store. Shannon turned away in disgust as she realized he was serious. Matt got up and went to the fridge to pull from a Tupperware the last egg that remained. Holding it up to the light, we saw that it did indeed look like a normal chicken egg, except that a mass of indistinct lines were moving around inside of it. Matt glanced at me with an unhappy acknowledgement. Here, I told him, taking the egg and getting a pot out with a glass lid. Turning on the gas stove, I put the pot down on heat, cracked the egg inside of it, then slammed the lid on top. We gathered around and watched as the egg spilled open on black metal, releasing what looked like a single, very long, writhing brown hair on white and yellow goop. It arched up and tapped the glass, but could not escape, and I held my hand down forcefully on the lid just in case. It didn't seem to have any real strength, but there was no way I was letting that thing out. Except, that's what's inside us, Matt murmured. He found it in a cave, so it's not alien. It's just some sort of earthly parasite, but Jesus Christ, that's not much better. Shannon visibly fought the urge to vomit in order to say, at least it's dying in there. So we just cook ourselves. Brian rasped behind us. No big deal, right? Matt shook his head. It poked out of our fingers earlier, and... There had to be a reason for that. Possibly air? If we can... Look! Shannon held up her hand to show us a hair emerging from a middle finger. I had to do it. It was instinct and terror all at once. I grabbed the hair and pulled it before it could retract. Shannon screamed, but more in shuddering disgust at some internal feeling than pain. Three hand-length spans jerked right out of her finger from under her nail before her hair pulled taut and Matt and Brian stared in confusion for a moment before joining me to grab and pull. The hair seemed to have reflexively latched onto something inside of her and Shannon grimaced and reached for a knife on the counter. No, Matt shouted. We have to get it all out of you. It could be like a worm and regenerate from the split parts. God, it feels like you're bowling on my lung. Shannon forced out, even as she pushed backwards to give us more force. Something gave, and all three of us fell with a writhing brown hair in our hands. It was at least as long as the one we'd captured in the pot, so we knew we had it all. It wasn't very strong, but it was slippery with blood and bile, and I grabbed another pot while Matt and Brian struggled with it. It began to wrap itself completely around Brian's wrist, which put it into a shape that would fit neatly in the pot prison, and we used its own bloody slipperiness to slide it off his arm and into captivity. I slammed the lid on top of it with a scream of anger. We turned to find Shannon crawling on the floor gasping. She was still breathing, but only partially. Back, lay back, Matt said firmly. Your lungs collapsed. Shannon nodded and laid back in the mess of blood on the floor. Thinking quickly, I ran to a closet and grabbed a sewing needle. We poured hard liquor across, best we could think of at the time, and poked the needle between our ribs. I blew air hard down into our open mouth until the change in pressure let me know that her lung had reinflated. Did that work? I asked, falling backwards on traces of warm red. Did that actually work? 
Shannon lay there breathing normally, but unable to move from the shock and pain. Is that the proper medical procedure? Matt asked, staring at the needle sticking out of her skin. Hell if I know, I saw it in a movie. Brian sat against the wall where he'd fallen after the struggle. How do we know it's over? What if it laid eggs inside her somewhere? Matt shook his head. For the first time I noticed one of Brian's nails was black. Grabbing his hand, I found that the nail bed had died and the cuticle around it had begun to crack. I could see the very faintest hint of the end of a brown hair within. None of my nails are black. I pulled my hand. The finger I'd seen the hair emerge from was very white, indicating that it was being starved of oxygen. His infection's further along, Matt said after crawling over to look. Another day and we'll be like that. Don't talk about me like I'm not here, Brian said, his fear and sorrow deepening. I'm just trying to figure this out as fast as possible, he replied, intent. Brian, how many times have you seen it emerge from your finger? That would be Shannon's second time. Our second emergence should be up soon if the first time was any indication. Tears began to mix with sweat on Brian's face. Four. I thought of the real problem. Ours happened at the same time, Matt. Jacqueline, he said softly. He knew. While we waited for our second emergence, I cooked the hair we'd pulled out of Shannon. It blackened and died out without a single noise, and I felt nothing but cold, vindictive satisfaction. I readied a third pot while they cleaned and sanitized the kitchen table and floor and a needle. Everyone gathered around me, and I felt like I was about to undergo an amateur surgery. In a way, I was. The hair slid out from under my index fingernail without warning, and Matt grabbed it and pulled as hard as he could. Immediately, I felt what Shannon had felt, except this time it seemed to be wrapped around something lower. My intestines seized and bunched inside me as if I was on a roller coaster, and I threw up all over my friends while they pulled with all their strength. I could literally feel the hair unraveling inside me, and I gasped as the last coil released, and it practically flew through my torso, down my arm, and into the open air covered in blood and horror. I was too weak to move, but Shanna repeated the trick of getting it to coil around her wrist and then sliding into a pot. Even as we finished, I saw the hair on Matt's finger slide back in. We'd missed his second chance. Two down, he said anyway, watching his own hand. We'll have to try mine on its third emergence. His tone belied how little we knew about these things and how grim he guessed his and Brian's situations were. For the next several hours, we sat on edge, waiting. We only had a few seconds to act, and we couldn't miss our opportunity. Matt's other roommates came around and went with friends and guests. We never took our eye off Brian's hands. We cleaned up the blood, but the visitors could tell we were acting strangely, and I didn't care. This was too important. The first two emergences had only been a few hours apart, but the third, according to Brian, happened six hours later. He was spot on and the hair emerged from Matt's finger as evening began to darken the windows. Fatigue had dulled our adrenaline, so it took a second for us to act. When we realized it was finally happening, we jumped over and pulled. This one was much 
harder. It only came out enough for each of us to grab it with one hand, and Matt began seizing it with pain. It's... my... Uh, so many... stomach... lung... maybe liver? Oh, God! It was true. This one had a much stronger hold, and Matt appeared to be passing out from the pain. What do we do? I don't fucking care, he screamed. Just pull! We did. It wasn't working. With one hand, he reached over, grabbed a fork from the counter, bent some of its tines backwards, and stuck it in a wall socket. The shock did reach us, but it just made our hands clench tighter. I don't quite remember those moments. I returned to awareness, surrounded by an electric sizzle and smell and the long hair in my hands. It was still alive and moving, and the others groggily got up, stumbled toward the stove, and threw a pot down near me. It took minutes of struggle while we got the parasite inside and cooked it. We spent the next half hour on the floor, recovering our senses. It actually worked. Matt said, wiping blood from around his mouth where he'd coughed it up. Someone Google on their phone how to check for internal bleeding. Shannon had the only answer we could give in short order. Lightheadedness, dizziness, or fainting can result from any sort of internal bleeding once enough blood is lost. Matt checked his abdomen for any dark purple spots but found nothing. I'll just have to wait and see fell backward and lay staring at the ceiling. God, I hope I don't have to go to the hospital. It'll bankrupt me. Our sentiments were the same. We let a few moments of calm pass, but we'd all forgotten one thing. What about me? Brian asked as he clambered to his feet. He'd finally recovered from his electric shock. That was his third and it nearly wouldn't come out. Mine will be my fifth time. We'll shock it again, Matt told him from the floor. It'll let go. It couldn't help it. And it got nearly completely dark in the kitchen, and Brian stumbled downstairs to flip the breakers. A minute later, he screamed incoherently and then ran back up into the kitchen. The power's out! You burned it out! His terror took him in toward the front door and out onto the lawn. Where's he going? Shannon asked, forcing herself up. I got up too and helped Matt to his feet. We stumbled after our crazed friend who had already gotten to his car and taken off. Shannon watched them and then said, I think he's going to his work. Machine shop? I asked. Matt said, We have to stop him. We all piled into my car. My keys had seared a light char around my pocket somehow, but I pulled them from the crust around it and found that they still worked. I can't really remember the drive because I was in an injured daze, but Shannon guided me with a map app on her phone, and as we pulled into Brian's machine shop, just as he made it inside. He was holding onto something near his blackened finger, and I guessed it was the hair on his fifth emergence. He couldn't pull it out, but... He wasn't letting go, either. Hurry, Matt insisted. Leave me behind. Stop him. I had some idea what Brian was about to do, so Shannon and I ran to the machine shop after him. There was nobody there after hours, but one machine was humming to life. Brian had his hand near it, and the hair was caught in the mechanical grip before him. Stop, 
I screamed. Shannon yelled something horrified and desperate. I have to, Brian said rapidly. I have to get it out of me. I have to get it out of me. I can feel it. I can feel it thickening. I know. I know it's about to lay eggs in me. But you'll... I never finished what I was going to say. Brian hit the button to activate the machine with his other hand, and the mechanism put its full force into ripping the hair parasite out of him. But it had been inside him too long, and had wrapped around too many holds. I lost a friend to that parasite. Be wary. It's been six weeks, and the three of us have shown no evidence of further infestation. We removed it in time. Now that the police statements are over and the incident has apparently been buried, I feel the need to tell you to be careful. Even if it'll bankrupt you, even if you can't afford it, just go to the hospital. You can't handle things like this on your own. We tried that, and I'll forever be scarred. I'll never forget the sight of my friend's internal organs exploding out of his body and showering over us where his bloody split opened like a ruptured bag with a thick worm-like creature coiling in and around his every chunk. That's what you get when you try to handle it yourself. When I was growing up, I lived in a small town called Coventry. When I moved away, I was 15, but I always considered Coventry to be my hometown, and Mike Mattis was always my best friend. We moved to another state, so I only saw Mike a couple of times between the move and college, but we always stayed in touch and even wound up going to the same college the last two years when Mike transferred in from a junior college near Coventry. After college, I went on to graduate school at Texas A&M for architectural design, and Mike went back to Coventry, where he started teaching at the local high school. Life went on, and we drifted apart over some years, but when I got married, he was my best man. When we had our first child two years later, he was in the waiting room with me. We were best friends for life, regardless of how often we talked. Maybe that's why it didn't seem strange when I stopped hearing from him for a couple months. Our communications had never been very regular. A text every few weeks, a phone call every couple of months, that kind of thing. And we tried to get together when we could, but in the two years since having our little girl, travel plans had slid to the back burner. One day, I was sitting in a meeting with a potential client, listening to him try to convince us that it should be possible for us to design his shopping center to be both a palatial shrine to wealth and comfort, while still being buildable on a dismally low budget. I was about to tell him for the tenth time that he needed to get with his contractor to talk about the build cost when I heard my phone buzz. I picked it up and saw it was a text from Mike. You up for coming back to Coventry for a long weekend? I hadn't responded right away, but the more I thought about it throughout the day and on the way home, the more appealing the idea came. 
It occurred to me that I actually hadn't been back to Coventry since I moved away 14 years ago. More importantly, looking back through my call and text logs, I realized it had been nearly four months since I talked to Mike. Feeling a stab of guilt and nostalgia, I talked to my wife Stacy about it and she was all for it. She'd stay back and take care of our little girl and I'd talk to Mike about going and staying two or three days when it was good for him. When I called Mike's phone, no one answered and it said that the voicemail box had not been set up yet. I was going to wait and call later again that evening, but then my phone lit up with a return call from Mike. Hey Parker, sorry I missed your call, man. No problem, just wanted to call after getting your text. How have you been doing? Good, real good. Things have been really good here. Hey, you have to come back to Coventry for a long weekend? Mike's voice was slightly strange, almost like he was distracted or stressed out about something, and his question struck me as oddly awkward, mimicking the text message word for word and sounding almost as though he was reading from a telemarketer's script and was new at the job. It was the opposite of the way he was normally. If anything, Mike normally took things too easy. I'd never known him to be awkward talking to anyone, let alone me. Still, it had been a few months, and maybe he had something going on. I suddenly worried that I caught him at a bad time. Hey, yeah, but we can do it later if things are too busy right now. It's up to you. I was barely done with the last word before he was talking again, this tone more strident. No, you should come right away. <laughs> he paused and let out an uneven laugh. When he started back, he sounded like he was forcing himself to be slower and calmer, more laid-back sounding. It's all good, man. I miss seeing you. I'd like to show you around the town some, too. Lots changed since you were here. Deciding I was overthinking it, I pushed on. Cool, man. How's next weekend sound? I could fly in Friday morning and fly out Sunday night. If you want to pick me up at the Glenville Airport, that's cool. If not, I can rent a car. What do you think? Sounds great. Just send me the flight information and I'll pick you up. When I got off the phone, I told Stacy about the weirdness of the conversation, but she agreed that he was probably just preoccupied or just woke up or something else innocuous. He was my best friend, and I should go see him. And it would be cool to see how the town had changed. She'd never seen my hometown, so she made me promise to take lots of pictures. An hour later, I had booked a flight for the following Friday morning. The Glenville Airport was tiny and dingy, consisting of a single broken-down hallway with a rental car kiosk and metal detectors on one end in the waiting area for the single terminal on the other. The small connecting flight had consisted of me and only a handful of other travelers, so there weren't but a couple of people waiting for the plane's arrival when I entered the building. Still, it took me a few seconds to recognize Mike. As I said, I hadn't seen him since my daughter's birth two years earlier, but in that time he must have lost close to a hundred pounds, about seventy of which he didn't have to spare. He looked gaunt and sickly, and while I tried to not let it show in my expression, I hugged his bony frame. I felt a caustic mixture of fear and guilt curdling in my chest. My first thought was cancer or some immune disease. Clearly something was wrong. 
I had intended on waiting and broaching the topic more tactfully, but when I pulled away and saw his pale blue eyes in their dark sunken sockets, watched his thin, cracked lips stretched over teeth that seemed too big in his now gaunt face, it just spilled out. Fuck, man, are you sick? You've lost a ton of weight. I could hear the worry in my voice, but there was some accusation and anger, too. Why hadn't he told me he was going through all this? I could have helped, or at least talked to him more. He was already shaking his head, though, a deep laugh in his too pale throat. No, Park, nothing like that. I've lost a lot of weight, that's true. At first, I was doing it on purpose. I was running a lot, trying to build up to do marathons. Then I got hit with this weird gastro thing for a while. It fucked me up for about six weeks, and I only got over it last month. I'd already lost about 30 pounds before I got sick, and... I dropped another 40 eating broth and crackers for so long. He grinned. I know I still look like shit, but I'm on the mend. Just got checked last week and the doc said I've gained back 12 pounds so far. I'm trying to do it slow and steady. The healthy way. I frowned, not sure I believed him, but desperately hoping that it was true. And I worried I'd hurt his feelings. Look, you don't look like shit. You're just really skinny and it scared me for a second. If you say you're over it, though, that's great. I was just worried. Mike laughed again and gave me a light shove. I appreciate it. I'm so glad you're here. We headed out to his car, the same beat-up SUV he'd had since he crashed his old car the last year of college, and headed downtown toward Coventry. He asked me a few questions about Stacy and the baby, and there were times during that drive that he almost seemed like his old self. But then he would suddenly go off trail and go silent in the middle of asking a question or telling a story, like a weak radio signal fading out as you drive along. Then, right when I'd be on the edge of asking if something was wrong, he'd pick back up with something else, talking about the little shits in the classes he taught or how he was so ready to be living on his own again. He warned me that we were going to his parents' house to stay as he'd been staying there since he was so sick and since all of his stuff was still there. He looked slightly embarrassed, but I told him I remembered that his mom was a great cook and I knew he couldn't cook for shit, so it was an upgrade. He laughed and shrugged. We'll see what you think of her cooking now. We're all on kind of a health food kick since I got sick. All organic stuff, no meat, no gluten. You'll get used to it, but it might be a shock to your system. I grinned, looking out at the countryside as we rode along. It really was good to be back. The country out here was beautiful, and I had a lot of good memories from growing up around here. I'm sure I'll manage. So, what do you want to do while we're out here? I'm up for whatever, or just hanging out with you eating kale. Mike snickered and glanced at me. Suddenly his face grew inexplicably sad. You're a really good guy, Parker. And a good friend. My best friend. I frowned. Yeah, man, of course. You're my best friend, too. Are you sure you're okay? You can tell me if something else is going on. He just looked at me for several moments, his expression still stricken, his lips moving wordlessly as though caught between a whisper and a sigh. And his eyes cut away and back to the road. And when he spoke, his voice sounded strange again, like it had been on the phone. No, everything's fine, just glad you could come. 
drove on in silence for several minutes, and I could see Mike's hands flexing as he clenched the steering wheel. Finally, his grip relaxed, and when he spoke next, it was more of a conversational tone. So, uh, about things to do. I can show you around the town, of course. A lot has changed since you were last here. It's grown some, though it's still small compared to something like Glenville. We can go bowling at the new alley that opened up a few years ago. It's a nice place, and they have a tendency to hire hot college girls worth counters. I snorted. Aren't you getting a bit old for trolling for college girls at a bowling alley? He shrugged. Coventry doesn't have the largest dating pool, and while I admit it is a bit hypocritical since I lived there myself, I find that women around my age here, that aren't already married at least, tend to not be awesome. At least with college girls, there's a hope I can find a girl who is intelligent and ambitious enough to still go out while the getting's good. Laughing as I shoved him in the arm. Oh, so you're forcing some hard-working girl with a bright future to ride her coattails out of town. He started to respond, but then he stopped, his expression darkening. No. That's a nice idea, though. But no. I'll never go anywhere else. I'm going to die right here in Coventry. I didn't know what to say. I was still trying to come up with something that could be encouraging without sounding patronizing when his expression smoothed and he glanced at me again. One thing I have to show you while you're here is the new tunnel. I raised an eyebrow. The new tunnel? What new tunnel? His lips stretched back into a strange smile. Oh, it's really something. Out on the north side of town where they used to have the big horse ranch, it's grown up there a lot more now. They're even putting a new Walmart close by. But that tunnel? Well, you'll just have to wait and see. I was going to ask more questions, but I realized we were slowing to a stop. Looking up, I saw why. We were at his parents' house. Mike's parents lived in an older ranch-style house. They'd lived there since I was 12, and I remember always being amazed at how clean and well-kempt it always was. Not that my family's house growing up were terrible, but between Mr. Mattis keeping the yard and exterior and Mrs. Mattis keeping the inside immaculates, I always felt like I was walking into an idealized version of what a family home should be. This extended to Mike's parents themselves. His father was a kind-hearted man who ran a local hunting supply store and was always quick with a funny story or joke. His mom had been like a second mom to me growing up. She ran her own accounting firm and was always running around, but she was also one of the few adults that seemed to actually care what was going on in Mike's life and in my own, beyond the normal courtesy check that we weren't being abducted or hooked on drugs. Seeing the house now was almost as big as a shock as seeing Mike himself. More than one shutter had partially fallen down and a ragged blue tarp was draped like a sash around the chimney, presumably to try and stop a leak. The yard was a thick mess of weeds, and as we entered the house, the sense of clutter and disuse only multiplied. It wasn't filthy, and I understood that people sometimes let their housekeeping slide as they got older, but it was just a sharp contrast from what I remembered. Mike led me down the hall to the guest bedroom so I could put my stuff down, and as we passed the kitchen, I saw his parents from behind. They were standing side by side, still and silent as statues, staring at the faded floral wallpaper on the far kitchen wall. I was going to say something, but there was something so 
unnatural about what I was seeing and that inner voice or instinct warned against it. I wound up just moving down the hall to where Mike was waiting. After I put my stuff down in the guest room, I asked if we should stick around for a bit so I could say hey to his parents. Mike seemed to ponder it momentarily and then shrugged. Nah, let's just check up with them tonight. We can grab lunch out and then goof off for a while. I think my mom's planning on fixing a big dinner for us anyway. I nodded and followed him back out, stealing a glance back into the kitchen as we passed. There was no one there now, and we saw no signs of his parents as we went outside to get into his SUV. I was still uneasy about how strangely they'd been standing in the kitchen and how Mike was acting, but I tried to set it aside, deciding that I would chalk it up to an overactive imagination unless something else strange popped up. The afternoon was actually pretty good. Mike took me by his high school and showed me his classroom. School was out for the summer and all the rooms were in disarray from the custodians rewaxing all the floors, but it was nice to see part of Mike's life that was relatively normal. It was weird to think of him as a grown-up with a grown-up job, but he seemed to like it despite all of his complaining. I had no doubt he was a good teacher. We then went to go get something to eat, but the first two restaurants were closed, despite it being early in the afternoon. We ultimately settled on a fast food drive through before heading to the bowling alley. The bowling alley wasn't in as good a shape as I had expected based on what Mike had said, but then the same could be said for much of Coventry. It was strange. Portions of town would be in relatively good repair, while others seemed to be entering a sharp decline. This can be in any town, of course, but what was odd was how it was happening here. There was no rhyme or reason to it, with a well-kept building side by side with those headed towards ruination. There was no nice or not nice part of town, so as far as I could see. There were still smaller houses in poorer neighborhoods and larger ones in wealthier areas, but the neglect and air of disuse was spread equally among everyone. When I mentioned it to Mike as we were getting out of the bowling alley, he just shrugged and laughed. Yeah, property values and stuff been all over the place lately. I think it'll get better with time, though. I think that new tunnel is going to help things out in the long run. I almost stopped walking and forced him to tell me more about the tunnel. I should have, but I was enjoying being back around him, and it seemed like it was doing him a lot of good, too. So I just smiled and nodded, pushing my worry down as we entered the bowling alley. The place was relatively clean inside, though it was dimly lit in spots due to overhead lights that had gone out and not been replaced. Mike led me up to the counter where a young woman stood staring at us. The girl probably was of college age, but it was hard to say for sure due to her appearance. Her curly brown hair hung in damp, tangled strands down the sides of her long, pale face. Her skin had an unhealthy, waxy quality to it and the glazed look in her eyes made me think she was either high or suffering from a substantial fever. The worst thing was that she had these clusters of pus-filled sores festooning on the skin around both nostrils. I had to fight from reacting as we approached, and when Mike asked for shoes, I echoed him dimly with my own size, trying to avoid looking at her further without it being obvious. It didn't stop me from noticing that one of the sores was starting to drip onto her lips as she handed me my pair. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When we were away from her and at lane 12 putting on our shoes, I whispered to him, What's wrong with her? That's not acne. Mike glanced toward the front counter and then at me. Yeah, she's sick with something. I don't know. That kind of thing's been going around lately. Luckily, my stomach problems didn't include killer pimples. He tried to smile, but it faltered. I do feel bad for her, though. Poor kid. Glancing around at the empty lanes, he let out a sigh. I guess Friday afternoon is not the beehive of activity I was hoping for. Still, when's the last time you had a nice quiet bowling alley all to yourself? Dinner was surprisingly normal until the end. Mike's parents were older and a little odd, but more in the normal way you expect people to get in their last third of their life. They would talk over each other, repeat themselves occasionally, and take turns peddling me with questions about my life. It was kind of sweet, and it filled me with a sense of profound relief to just laugh and talk with these people that used to be a big part of my life without any of the disquieting strangeness I'd been seeing lately. The meal itself was not great, but it certainly seemed healthy. Grilled artichokes and steamed kale along with a small cold salad that seemed to be a mixture of tomatoes, cucumbers, and some odd vegetable I couldn't identify. I took a bite of it and my mouth filled with a pungent, smoky-tasting liquid that I assumed came from the inside of a vegetable. Grimacing, I caught myself before I swallowed and spat it out into my napkin. I didn't know what that was, but I didn't want any. I could even feel a light tingling numbness on my tongue and lips from it. After we'd finished eating and the conversation was starting to die down, Mike's dad asked where we were going for the next day. I shrugged and said I was up for whatever, with Mike adding in that he was thinking about taking me to the old skate park west of town to go hiking in the morning. I remembered us camping out there with Mike's dad when we were 12 or so, and I was already nodding enthusiastically at the idea of visiting again. Mike's father smiled thinly as he looked at Mike. That sounds just fine. Just make sure you take him to see the tunnel. It's really something. His gaze shifted to me. You really won't believe it. At this point, I'd had enough. Okay, what is it about this tunnel? Mike keeps talking about it, now you are too. Is it some kind of practical joke, or is there really a tunnel north of town? Mike was looking nervous, even scared, as he responded, his eyes going between me and his father. No, it's there, and it's very interesting, but we can talk about it more later. Looking back at me, he added, It's not a big deal, and we don't have to see it if you don't want to. I saw his father staring at Mike out the corner of my eye. I turned to face him while talking to Mike, catching the older man's gaze again. No, Mike. I'm I'm fine to see it. But what is it? Why do we have a tunnel around here anyway? Most of the land around here is flat. Did we suddenly grow a mountain I'm not aware of? Mike's father just stared back at me silently, his expression stony. 
When Mike didn't respond, I addressed his father. What about you, Mr. Mattis? Can you tell me why there's a tunnel here and what's so great about it? The man's lips stretched tight across his face, slowly slipping back to reveal his gray receding gums and his long yellowed teeth. It looked less like a smile and more like a rabid dog baring his teeth. He looked at me steadily and I could see a trace of yellow around his irises that matched his mouth. He clicked his teeth together once, twice, and then turned his poached egged eyes back to Mike. He'll understand when he sees it, son. You make sure he sees it tomorrow. With that, he stood up and tapped Mike's mother on the shoulder where she was standing at the sink. Without another word, they both left the kitchen and moved out of sight down the hall. When I felt they were likely out of earshot, I looked back at Mike. What the fuck was all that? He looked uncomfortable. You know how it is. People get weird when they get older. The tunnel is just something that got made a few months back, and it was a big deal at the time. Part of some new road development or something, maybe. But everyone thought it was great at the time, and some people still do. Small towns fixate on anything new, I guess. What he was saying made no sense, but he looked so desperate for me to believe him for the conversation to be over, I just nodded. Okay, man, well, I think I'm going to get some rest if that's okay with you. Gotta be. He nodded, and I stood up to leave when he caught my arm. He nodded, and I stood up to leave the kitchen when he caught my arm. If you don't feel right about things, if you're not comfortable here, it's okay for you to go. I mean, I would understand if you wanted to go. Right now, even. His expression was sad, and he was having trouble meeting my eyes, but as he said the last, he looked at me clearly. If you want to go... Right now's a good time. I considered it, seriously. I didn't know what was going on, and I was feeling more and more like I was in the first act of a horror movie, but that was stupid. Things like this didn't happen in real life. There was nothing sinister going on in this town. It was just a rundown little community whose best days were probably behind it. It was just my best friend who'd been sick was lonely and who had felt trapped in the place he'd never really left. My best friend who had finally worked up the courage to reach out to me. I wasn't going to abandon him just because I was a little uncomfortable and weirded out. Shaking my head, I patted his shoulder. (laughs) Nah, man, I'm cool. Just really tired. Let me get a good night's sleep and I'll be raging to go tomorrow. I promise. He nodded, the sad look still on his face. Okay, Park. I... Okay. I gave his shoulder another pat and headed back to the guest room. I heard movement from one of the other rooms that I assumed was his parents' bedroom, but I quickly ducked into my room out of fear that one or both of them were coming back out. I wanted to avoid another run-in for a bit. Laying down on the bed, I realized I was really exhausted. Without even changing my clothes, turning out the light, I soon found myself fast asleep. I woke up to rough hands carrying me by the shoulders and legs through the still warm night air. I was disoriented at first, in part because when I looked up, I saw Mike's parents and two other people I didn't recognize carrying me somewhere. 
Beyond them, and between passing streetlights, I could see the blackness of the summer sky, and looking around, I saw I was being carried up a street and part of town. I didn't recognize anything. I wanted to struggle, but I was coming to realize that I had somehow been drugged. Every attempt to move my limbs felt like I was fighting against quickly drying cement. I heard Mike's voice a few feet back from the direction we were going. Fuck, he's waking up. You said he wouldn't wake up before it was over. One of the men I didn't recognize glared back in Mike's direction. He has to be awake to appreciate it, doesn't he? He has to look to truly see it and understand. That's when we began to cross the threshold into the tunnel. We were moving at a distinctly downward angle now, and the air was growing cooler as they walked. Looking at the walls of the tunnel in the fading light, I saw no signs of concrete or wood. Instead, every angle of the tunnel seemed to be made of a packed earth held together by clusters of ebony nodules and great tendons ripping and twisting through the earth and connecting one group of black barnacle-like protrusions to the next. I redoubled my efforts to move, and while I managed to pull my arm free from Mike's mother's grip for a moment, she quickly regained control. I cast my eyes around for any other avenue of escape. That's when I saw the stomach of the man who had yelled at Mike. His shirt had ridden up and toting me, and I could see what looked like a handprint on his lower stomach. Except the handprint was abnormally long and narrow, with what seemed to be six distinct and spindly fingers. And the print wasn't just some stain or even a burn. It was made up of the same fetid, blossoming sores that had been clustered around that poor girl's nose. I began to scream, and a moment later I was on the ground. At first, I thought I was being dropped intentionally, but then I saw Mike had shoved down handprint men and then done the same to his father. I understood he was trying to save me, but there was only one of him, and I couldn't fight. The thunder of gunfire echoed in the tunnel, and the muzzle flash lit up the darkness enough for me to see something moving towards us from within the void. I don't remember what it looked like now, or how we got out of that tunnel. All I remember is Mike helping me to the driver's seat of his SUV and pressing the keys into my hand. He was sobbing, and his left arm flopped uselessly by his side. He told me I had to go. I had to drive as best I could and get away. Drive back down, away from the tunnel, keep going south until I hit the state highway, and then pick a direction. Keep going until I got to a bus or an airport. I was more lucid now, and I interrupted him. No, you need to come with me. I'm not leaving you here. He shook his head. I told you. I can't leave. He reached out and grabbed the sides of my face. Park, listen to me. You need to get away now and never come back. I may call you or text you, but you never answer, and you never come back. I didn't fully understand, but I'm ashamed to say I didn't argue further. Whatever shadowy recollection I had of what was in that tunnel was more powerful than my love for my best friend. I drove away and then made it to a bus station, then an airport. Mike must have been at least considering this plan for a while because I found my wallet in the glove compartment of his car, a new photograph tucked in with my cash. I made it home eventually, and after just some time of holding Stacy and our little girl, 
I told her what happened. Warned her that we could never go back to that place or those people again, including Mike. I don't know that she fully believed me, but she agreed. And then we heard my phone buzz. She picked it up off the counter and I saw her face pale. When she showed it to me, I saw it was a new text from Mike. You up for coming back to Coventry for a long weekend? I took the phone out to the garage and hammered it apart, changed the number and got a new phone the next day. Less than a week later, it buzzed with a new message from Mike. Up for coming back to Coventry for a long weekend? We've decided to move now. I'm writing this from a hotel room we're staying in until our new house is ready. The third phone, a burner, hasn't been tracked down yet, so hopefully we're in the clear. Still, I wanted there to be some record of all this. I'm holding the photo Mike had put in my wallet, and I'm trying not to wake Stacy with my crying. The picture is one Mike's mother took of us when we were 14. We were getting ready to go trick-or-treating, despite Mike's father subtly hitting that we were too old for it. I think we both knew he was right, but we also knew this was one of the few childhood things we had left. Besides, a week or two earlier, my father had gotten notice that the local plant he worked out was closing the following year, which meant we were likely moving to another state in the next few months. So, we were going to make the most out of the time we had left. I look at that picture, reminded of all the memories and emotions I still have from my childhood and my friendship with Mike, and then I think about the last time I saw him in the rear view of his car. Standing on a lonely road, broken, terrified, and hopeless as he watches me go. Watches me leave him one last time. As I started around the corner that took him out of view, I think he was limping back that tunnel. I loved you, Mike. I'm so sorry. <sighs>